Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and TV. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and television. On Movie Beat, we'll talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera. I'll provide you with guests and information you'll want to have, whether you are a filmmaker or a fan. So let's move now behind the scenes. I want to welcome my listeners today uh, to uh, part two of uh, writing uh, from script to screen with uh, Mr. Ron Coleman. And I'll get into uh, Ron's background and and welcome him on the show in just a few moments. Um, I want to say if you're listening live, be sure to uh, click the little button there to make this a favorite show. Uh, You can tweet it, share it with your friends, Facebook it. Um, And uh, after the show... You can uh, find these archives. So if you're listening to the archives, obviously you're at rexsykes.com. That's www.rexsykes.com. Uh, and there, again, tweet, tweet the archived interviews, uh, uh, Facebook them, share them, spread them with your friends and your, your uh, industry connections. But you can subscribe to the RSS feed at the Rex Sykes Movie Beat official site, and that will automatically update you when there are new archived interviews, when there's new cast or crew news, when there's new blogs, uh, new uh, video uploaded to the site, uh, and all of the updates. You can get them uh, delivered right to you when you subscribe using the RSS feed on the welcome page. And I want to thank you for tuning in and for your emails and for your support, for your phone calls. Uh, we really appreciate it. And now uh, I'd like to talk to you about this gentleman. He uh, He's from Detroit, Michigan originally. He uh, studied at UCLA and the American Film Institute. He did internships with uh, Alfred Hitchcock and Lee and Anna Strasberg. He's been an actor in production. He's done uh, gazillions of projects. He's been a manager and line producer for industrial and educational films, commercials, live multimedia events. He was even the general manager of a multi-stage studio complex in Chicago. Uh, he's done grip and electrical. He's had a grip and electrical company, but he's also been the line producer and production manager for uh, television series like uh, Chicago Hope, uh, ER. He did numerous five seasons on ER, and for movies such as um, Rookie of the Year, Sleepless in Seattle, Rudy, and many, many others. He uh, recently produced a, a movie starring Samuel Jackson, and I'm going to have him tell you about that as soon as we bring him on. This is Mr. Ron Coleman. Are you there today, Ron? How are you? I am here today. I'm great, Rex. How are you? Good, thank you. I mentioned just a little bit about the movie that you uh uh, produced last year, I believe. Uh, you want to tell the uh, audience about that for just a moment? And well, sure. Actually, I was an executive producer on it. I wasn't the producer. Uh, but the film was called Gospel Hill. It was released domestically by Fox Home Entertainment and foreign distribution by a number of other parties. It starred Danny Glover, Angela Bassett, Samuel Jackson, Julia Stiles, Riza. A number of other really, really great people. I really don't have to say that, but it's pretty well known. And it was a story about it was a story about uh, a family who has a history in the civil rights movement and how that you know that courage played a part today in uh, improving the relations amongst their communities. In fact, saved their communities. It's really an exciting project, and if I hadn't been a part of it, I'd still be excited about it. Oh, very cool. Now, you own RK Media, 
Limited Liability Corporation, that um, you also do advertising campaigns and instructional programs. Uh, you do production management for independent films and uh, have a weekly newspaper column. Uh, you've written uh, a recent screenplay we discussed last time, uh, Late Train, and the producer for that would be Scott Rosenfeld, who's done films like Home Alone, and uh, and you're developing that as a feature and as a and as a play. Um, and and I know that we can't talk much about that, but you've written a lot. I mean, you 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 write and and you enjoy writing, and uh, and we started our conversation last time about writing. So do you mind, Ron, if we jump right into that then today? No, go ahead. All right. I'm going to ask you the uh, simple, broad question. What does a writer do? (laughs) Uh, Well, the first thing a writer does is in approaching the discipline or the task or the the luxury of writing is stare at a blank screen or a blank page or into the sky and come come up with a story and uh you know as i mentioned before going to the store could be in and of itself a story uh but it really needs to be a story that you feel deeply about um and it could be whimsical it could be comedy, it could be a drama, it could be an opera, but I don't think the writer does a project service, a good service, if it's just a passing thought that that you can't commit yourself to, because in writing, you're pulling a lot of things out of your soul and out of the environment. You have to be willing to live with this story, and if it, you know, if it's just how do I put a coin in a parking meter? I don't think, for me anyway, that that's going to hold my interest or generate any passion for that story. Uh, that that makes perfect sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And um, I'm going to let you continue, but let me let me interrupt just for a moment to tell the listeners that I have opened up the chat window. So if if you have questions for Ron, during the time that uh, we're on the air together, feel free to uh, send them this way, and and if we can include them, I certainly will. So uh, you're staring at a blank page, and and you're 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 actually reaching into your being for something meaningful. Right, and uh, you know, again, as we discussed last time, you have to know who you're telling the story to. If I'm just telling it to myself as a recollection, that may be enough. To start but you have to know who you're talking with or to uh you know so you can really tell that story telling the same story to a five-year-old may be entirely different than the way you tell it to a 65 year old so a, you know again a, knowing who you're point, talking sure. with that, that's an excellent point so so you, you, I mean, but that's for the screenplay itself. I mean, we're not, we're, 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 you're not actually suggesting that you determine your audience in advance, are you? I mean, I mean, in some ways, obviously you are, but, but I would guess you're talking more about the, for lack of a better term, the voice of the story. The, um, I mean, you could do a children's movie that that would have an audience of, you know. Uh, predominantly 40-year-olds, depending on how you did it. So I, I'm, when you say decide who you're telling it to, how, can you clarify that a bit more? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, if I'm if I'm telling you a story of what happened to me over the weekend, because of my relationship with you and my, you know, my perception of your ability to comprehend, I will tell you things that, you know, somebody, you know, who's twice our age or a fraction of our age may not quite get. You know, if I talk with you about something that happened, uh, you know, during the Vietnam War, for many people that may be remote history, and for many others it could be in their hearts they could feel it as if it were yesterday or today for that matter. Uh, because everybody has a relationship to reality, whether they like it or not. But everyone does have a relationship 
to what's going on in the world. So, again, I think from the very beginning of telling a story or considering the opportunity to tell a story, the writer really needs to at least begin to consider who he or she is talking with, um, whether that's an audience that pays to see the project, whether it's an audience that is going to read the project, whether it's an audience that's going to sit over a cup of coffee to listen to you spill your guts, you still have to take into consideration that other party. Well, I think it's an excellent point, and one that probably most people, including myself, don't necessarily consider, and that is, you know, I will talk to my children who are, you know, preteen differently about things than I would uh, a teenager or a college student or a 40-year-old person or an 85-year-old person. And and if I decide for the purpose of my story who it is that I'm telling the story to, and how, I would speak differently. It, w- it would be a very different work than if I just had, oh, I'm just writing a movie or I'm just writing a story for anyone who's out there listening. That's right. You know. and, and you may, in the course of telling the story, change who you're telling it to. But you have to start with the idea that I'm sharing this with somebody else. I like that. that, that that's, that's very good. Uh, I do have a, an, an Internet question here, and I, I think uh, I, I don't want to jump uh, to a different topic, but the question that uh, is asked is, do you get uh, much of your writing from past experience or or from observations, I guess, is is what the listener wants to know. Uh, yes, <laughs> to answer that question. Uh, I've never been able to... I've never been able to imagine something outside of the universe. And if I do, it's I've just never been able to do it. Uh, those people who write those types of stories, I, you know, I'm always uh, impressed with because I think I'm confined with my own experiences, the things I observe, the things that I've been a part of. Uh, I certainly do research to flesh out a story further, but the springboard, the impetus for that story comes from what I've observed uh, and what I've experienced. That makes perfect sense. Um, as we continue, so so you 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 you've chosen your audience, and now it comes time, and you've stared at the blank screen, and you, and and you've chosen from your background or your observations, and now you're creating a story. What what uh, where do we go from here? Uh, I think that the the people who will tell the story within the story are the characters, mm-hmm. and uh, in my experience, I draw those characters from people I've known, people I observe, people I imagine, you know, how they would be. Uh, You know, in a project I'm working on now, you know, I've created characters as uh, an amalgamation of various character traits of other people. And, in fact, some of the characters at the beginning have become merely character traits of another person, so I've whittled down the size of the cast. Um, so that's it. You need you need people now, may, or characters. The character may be a basset hound. The character may be a flower. You know what what happens to a flower from you know when it's a seed in the ground, how it matures. What if that flower could have a point of view? And maybe it does. I don't know. I'm not a gardener. If you looked at my property you'd know I'm not a gardener <laughs> unless dandelions are considered hybrids but um, yeah I mean you know every animate or inanimate object could have a point of view and that could be the character that begins to tell the story and then what that character or who that character encounters become yet additional characters that makes sense, and I, and I think also the thing that you said moments ago helps to flesh out or make even more real or believable the characters is if they're um, 
if you take from the people around you and your observations and you and you give those characteristics or those traits uh, those mannerisms those those ways of being to the characters that you're developing in in whatever combination or shape or form that you would do so exactly uh, i mean it makes more sense to me to be able to more accurately describe someone I know than to fictitiously create someone, and I'm sure there are writers who can do both, or one or the other. But but it does make sense to 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 look around and observe uh, from around you and and find what you can put in, you know, who the, or or draw from, I guess, rather than just trying to to, to insert. But uh, that's very cool. I appreciate that. Thank you. You know, I would uh, imagine that. Again, I would imagine that it's a safe thing to say that every character that has value in a story, when that writer created, or the writers created that character, they had to have drawn upon characteristics, qualities, imperfections that they've observed because whether you're writing alone or writing with other people, you have to be able to refer to and say, oh, this character uh, combs his hair. Oh, you know Rex Sykes. You know how he combs his hair? That's how I imagine this character would comb his hair. So you're still drawing upon, and you do comb your hair, don't you? <laughs> well, if you've seen me, you know that I'm not a gardener when it comes to hair. Okay. But, uh, you know, we, we create these right. posits based on others. And sure, you you know, you may say, well, this guy's 11 feet tall or, you know, whatever. Uh, you can invent some things, but, again, I think the beginning of developing a character is to draw upon our own experiences, our own observations. Uh, you know, even, I mean, if you read the Bible and imagine what, you know, Matthew may be like if he were here today. And I don't know enough about the Bible to say, but you would imagine that and start drawing on the things that are that were written by Matthew or that were said by Matthew and you go from there. I'm trying to avoid the obvious names in the Bible. Or the well, no, that's, <laughs> no, that's cool. I appreciate that and, and I imagine when it comes to writing dialogue, I mean what, what you're saying has, has triggered thoughts for me that you know if, if I were to sit down and try and write and I imagine a character, I could imagine what this character might say, and that would come from from my imagination. But it might serve me better if I say, cho de depending obviously on the character, um, if say I chose my father, my father's speaking patterns would have been very different, say, than my mother's speaking patterns. And when it comes to dialogue, if I could find people who I think fit that character and then write the way they speak, I would have more individualistic dialogue than if I just create all my characters in my head and, and type the words that I think they would say. Exactly. Yeah, um, well, earlier on in my writing career, every character sounded like Ron Coleman. Whatever, I, I mean, I could say that they had an accent, but I never picked up on the dynamics of those people. And now, you know, now that I really create characters based on real people and real circumstances, they really become individuals, and I can create the backstory of these characters, the things that have happened prior to when they're introduced in the story, understanding more about them. So, you know, again, and because, as you said, if you create a character with some of the qualities of your mother, your father, whomever, uh, then those characters become individuals, and they have an ability to carry the story further rather than just being, you know, paint on the wall. No, that's very cool. And now you brought up something you, um, about the backstory, and I know that in our in our, our previous conversation, uh, I said that one of the things that uh, that really struck me about you is that when when we were discussing uh, your current project, that you had these this incredibly rich, detailed backstory for the characters and who they were and and how they were and, and, and what they were like, and that that was one thing that, uh, one of many things that I truly appreciated about 
about you and about what you were and how you were able to convey these the story and these characters when discussing it uh, it 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 makes for a far more richer experience for the listener so uh, you know it makes it for a far more richer experience for the for the reader or for the viewer of the of the final movie when someone can do that um and i noticed that in some of our notes from the last conversation that 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 that, that, that aspect of character backstories um do you want to address that a little bit more today um, sure, if you'd like, if people want to hear that, it. I would, yes, yeah, that'd be great. Um, if When you have a again, whatever we see in a story, whether it's in literature, you know, the hard copy literature, internet literature, episodic literature, or theatrical literature, and I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot of other ways that literature is shared, uh, it's a snapshot. It's what's occurred because of something. Um, you know, again, if I'm going to the store, I'm going to the store with a reason. But the audience doesn't necessarily have to know that reason if the main story is me looking for a parking space in a shopping mall and the many things that can go on and the battles of the parking lot. Uh, I, you know, as a character, I need to have a reason to be there. Otherwise, I could be a lamppost for all that matter. Uh, it also helps the actor in reading a script to be able to discuss with the writer, director, who hopefully share the same vision. You know, who is this person? You know, when Johnny Depp plays John Dillinger, I don't think, and I haven't seen the film, I haven't read that script, but I don't think that he just put on a costume and walked onto the set. I have a feeling he looked into the backstory of John Dillinger to the why and wherefore and you know who he was to be at the point in his existence that made him public enemy number 1. So Good point, yeah. Now the backstory is really the the foundation of each character. And again, it could be Oh, there's the mailman, and the mailman has this government job. I don't have to know how he or she did in high school, but I need to know that this person has the job and how they feel about it, if that character is going to be an important element in telling the story. Cool. All right. That's that's excellent. Um, You... You've created this, the, the characters. You've you've chosen these this background and, and these characteristics, and, and they're coming together. And now you set them somewhere. I mean, it takes this this takes place. How do you how do you create a believable environment for them? What, what I think it depends on the story. Uh, if I'm writing a piece about the building of Tower Bridge in London, then I have to go back into the 19th century. If I'm building the you know a modern bridge then i have to be there um you know i my project late train is a contemporary story the reason why is the economics of the production that it could be a story that takes place 50 years in the future or 100 years in the past but for the sake of economy i've made it contemporary uh, that's my choice as a writer and as a filmmaker to, you know, where should the dollars be spent in telling this story? I don't think it'll be a better story if it's 100 years ago. So I've created that environment. And again, for anybody writing any story, if it's about going to a shopping mall or the story of a flower, in and of itself, that story will come with an environment. And then the details will be they will evolve as you tell that story, as you create more and more of that story. Uh, so I think that if, we're, if we have a story, an idea that's important enough for us to commit to, part and parcel of that is an environment. And whether the walls are green or purple or red, you know, those things come about with the development of the story. 
but I think a story comes with the story's a skeleton and it comes with some clothing around it. So from there now, you know, you've got these different elements. Uh, character, uh, character quirks, or, or characteristics. Um, you know, the, the, their dialogue, how they speak, and what they think. Their backstory, the setting. And now it comes time to tell the story. Exactly. Any, yeah. any tell the story. Yep. Um, I, I have to say that again, Late Train was a lot of characters, and the environment, I pretty established. It was a train. Mm-hmm. But all these characters, and I kept developing the characters and backstory and all that, and finally, <clears throat> the person who is my greatest influence and inspiration, actually, is my wife, Melanie. And she said, you know, write it. <laughs> Just write it. Tell the story. Stop, you know, building all these other things around it. And, uh, you know, she's the one who helped me get off the conceptual page and get into a real page of really telling that story. And I think sometimes for for writers or maybe for any artist using the term very generously, uh you know, painters look at a blank canvas. A musician looks at if they write a score and look at a ledger page or they look at the keyboard or the guitar or whatever it is taking that first step to commit can be difficult because you're pulling something from deep within and it could be it could be a hard thing to do so i really you know every day you know i thank my wife for a million things but for my creative life i thank her for that as well and that she really helps me see what's what is the next proper step? And she's a doctor. She's not a filmmaker. So it's not like she's been through this a million times, although now she's getting a lot of experience with it. Well, so you can, so that's, that's lovely. And I guess it acknowledges that you can, you can get or find inspiration from anywhere. It doesn't have to be within the small circle of filmmakers. So that's, that's very nice. I think sometimes we, you know, when I worked as an actor, the one thing I really disliked was sitting with a bunch of actors and talking about the auditions that went awry. And, uh, you know, that should have been my part. That was written for me, and, gee, you know, Jimmy Stewart took it, and he he shouldn't have taken it, you know, or whatever. You know, that, you know that's mine. And, you know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of creative opportunity in talking with your peers, but it also is such a tight circle that the perspectives can become stale until we look outside of that circle. And, you know, there's a group, you know, I meet with very informally, very occasionally uh, during a weeknight, and it's the home of a family. We have two little kids. Uh, other people who come, you know, have other things going on in their lives. So the things that are discussed, the perspectives that are shared, are much broader than if I were to just sit with with you all the time. And it would be Rex and Ron talking all the time, and there would be there would reach a point where I'd know what you're going to say, and you'd know what I'm going to say, and until we bring in other influences, it can become stale. Absolutely. Excellent points. Very, very, very good points. Do you have then also, I mean, you've got this inspiration, you know, in your wife and from outside, um, which is awesome. I mean, that's an, that's an incredible, you know, when when a person can have that. I, I appreciate that. Um, but now, just nuts and bolts, do you have a, a practice in terms of, of how you approach writing? Do you do a little bit every day or you set aside your Saturdays? Or, or how do you approach the task of writing for the listeners out there? Are there recommendations that you make that, that, that seem to, you know, over the years that have worked best for you? I try to, and the operative word is try, but mm-hmm. I really try to set aside at least four hours a day uh, 
some days it becomes four minutes. Some days it's 14 hours. But I try to set that aside, you know, Monday through Friday, four hours a day. <clears throat> and, yeah, and I, I do what I can. You know, so, again, sometimes those four hours, it may feel like four hours in four or 40 minutes. And sometimes I sit down early in the morning, not crack of dawn early in the morning, but, you know, eight or nine in the morning, and I look up and it's dusk because I was able to be that productive. Uh, but I think unless we set aside the time, and everybody is different, but if we don't set aside that time, we'll never find the framework within which to exercise these muscles. You know, I walk or try to walk, again, try, uh, 30 minutes every morning. Some mornings, no problem. Other mornings, don't don't happen. Uh, but at least I know in my mind, and now in my body, having done it enough, 30 minutes a day are set aside for that. And four hours, Monday through Friday, each day, are set aside for me to work on my craft as a writer. And it doesn't mean I have to write on only one project. I could be writing other things or doing some research for that project. But, uh, and you know, we mentioned this at other times, that writing, like bicycle riding or singing or playing the piano or dancing or learning how to sail a boat, are all disciplines that require some practice. Nobody is a born dancer. They have to learn something. You know, Bruce Lee, you know, was a master in his art, but it didn't, he wasn't born that way. He practiced. And, you know, we hear about people who are naturals. You know, he's a natural baseball player or has a natural swing on a golf course. But that person is still constantly working to make that natural ability more predictable and uh, and a muscle. The, the ability becomes a muscle that's toned and exercised. So stay with it. I mean, you know, you just keep doing it and you're doing it. And, you, and there is, there is uh, just uh, as, a, as an aside, in, in all practice, there's a, a, a plateau phase. Uh, oh, yeah. Apparently, what hap- yeah, apparently what happens is, is, is say you begin golfing, and uh, sometimes there's beginner's luck, and you do really great, and then the next day you come back and you and you really terrible. But as you begin to practice, you get better and better, and then people tend to hit this plateau phase where they don't get any better. They're not any worse, but they don't get any better. And that phase could be a day, it could be a week, it could be a couple of months. Um, but what uh, I guess most behavioral uh, psychiatrists or behavioral physiologists understand about this is that is the body and brain's way of, of integrating what it's been learning and it and it, so what it does is it slows down your progress while it, it kind of takes inventory and, and makes all the right neural connections and then all of a sudden you, you move on once those connections are made and and, and the it seems to be that the the best way to get through the plateau is to recognize it's a plateau, to recognize you're in it, and to to keep going anyway, rather than getting frustrated and throwing in the towel. Right. So you know, I mean, I I share this with people, you know, on a number of occasions, and that my view of life is that the first ten years we're learning how to use our bodies, the next ten years are when we're told how to use our bodies, what the rules and regulations are. And those are our teen years. In our 20s, we start spreading our wings and finding out which or any of those rules and regulations work within our context. And then in our 30s, we say, okay, you know, and when we reach our 50s or 60s or 70s, we don't care anymore because the people who gave us those rules are typically not around. So I think that as a writer, as an artist, in the beginning we're learning how to do the fundamentals. You know, in percussion there are, you know, I think there's 15 rudiments, you know, the paradiddle, the roll, and all these other things. Um, In ballet, I think 
you know, their first position, second position, on and on and on. There are fundamentals that we learn. And then we start learning how to use those fundamentals, and then we start experimenting. How does this work for me? Um, I have never been and will probably never be able to diagram a sentence. If that were the requirement for graduation, I would still be in fifth grade. Fortunately, I had a more liberal education and it wasn't required. But, uh, you know, you, you know, I don't think it's decade by decade by decade. I think it could be day by day or hour by hour that we go through these things and cross-reference you know, getting back to the fundamentals and then trying something a little bit different with that. You know, in our evolution as a as a person and as an artist. Um, I agree. I, I think I think it's very fascinating. I think that there's uh, you know, I mean, this whole area is very ripe for for individuals who are trying to hone and develop their craft to. Um, Genius, for example, has often been described as those who have learned the rules and gone beyond them at a certain point, but they have always started with the rule base. There, there seems to be very few mavericks who are just wildly, you know, a genius without having had some structure at first. And so, for writers or filmmakers, you know, to, to learn the rules, whether it's through film school or through trial and error or through practice or from their peers or mentors and apprentices and things like that, they learn the rules, and then and then they learn, as you said, you know, which rules they're going to adhere to, which they aren't, and, and where they can move off in, in different um, in different directions or dimensions to, you know, and go beyond it. Um, Ron, I got to take uh, about 30 seconds here and just tell people that if you're listening at the archive um, at rexsykes.com, that's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. Remember to subscribe to the RSS feed and to be, uh, you know, help us spread the word about this resource, this educational resource called Rex Sykes Movie Beat, which is about conversations with filmmakers, like the excellent conversation we're having right now with Mr. Ron Coleman uh, regarding screenwriting from script to screen and and getting movies made. So uh, please do share these uh, conversations with your friends, your colleagues, uh, your movie-making buddies and, and girlfriends, and uh, and keep Movie sure. Beat. Uh, uh, we, we promise to keep you with uh, with excellent conversations and and, uh, and to take it from there. I'm sorry. I, I want to get right back into this with Run. Um, Run, um, you know, you've worn a lot of hats. You, you you have been an actor, or maybe still are an actor. You write, you have produced, and you do produce. Uh, you direct, and um, and so you you. I think you have an advantage in some ways where you know you you've had scripts come across your desk, uh, and you you've gotten to see many in television as well as in feature films or and and perhaps in stage plays, and you and you can read them and you can assess them. I, I think. One of the things about reading a lot of scripts is, is like anything, you, you've then gotten practice and you develop your sensibilities about what makes or doesn't make a good script. Um, so let me ask you from a man who wears all these hats, how do you determine a good premise for a movie or for a screenplay? Wow. Uh, well, first, does it hold my attention? Uh, am, am I interested in it? Uh, then is the question of can this script be made into a movie? You know, is it is it beyond my reach? If I'm excited about the story, is it something that within my toolbox I'm able to create? There are projects that are you know they're outside of my reach. I just have to be honest with that. And so for me as a filmmaker, I need to be able to pass on a project that is just not right for me either because of the you know production skills that are required the assets that I can draw upon uh the financial viability of the project um is it a project that can fit within my schedule is it something where the screenwriter says this has to be done before labor day of 2009 and for me I'm not able to pick up and do it that quickly others you know others can do that and that's great uh and 
can I use the technology that I'm familiar with or have access to to tell the story? Uh, again, if I'm writing, if I'm looking at a story as literature, just to read it and enjoy it or not enjoy it, that's one thing. But if I'm approaching it as a business opportunity, then I have to look at it and see whether or not I have the wherewithal to help this story find a proper setting. And, you know, you know, there are a lot of things that cross my desk that I'd love to work on, and some of them will take or would take too much time to develop and produce, and others I just don't get at all. So, you know, I have to be honest with the people who provide the opportunities and say, thanks, but... I can't do it. So yeah, yeah this, this, that's, that's uh, it. Well, I'm going to ask you to, to to flip the hat and to to ask you the same question as a writer. But before I do that, um, I, I think you've 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 touched on some things we said last time and, and even today, and and at least I'm making some connections with it. In that. You know, you talk about a contemporary story, and, and you talked about the number of characters. You talk it, when 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 we last met, you know, you talked about you know keeping it reasonable so that it could be produced, and it 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 brings to mind what you've just said now. When you say, well, as a producer, I look at the screenplay and I go, or as a director or or, or whomever, I, I look at it and go, is it is it something I can do, or is it beyond my reach? And I, I remember a friend of mine writing his very first screenplay way back when we were 18, 19 years old, something like that. And he gave it to us to read, and it wasn't that it was horrible or anything like that. It just it wasn't very good, but it, it was his first. But it also took place all over the world, and it was designed to be kind of this James Bond super spy thriller movie where, you know, they would be in an embassy in the Soviet Union, and then they'd be, you know, in London, and then they'd be in, in California, and then they'd be in D.C., and then they'd be in Australia. And we just looked at him at that time, not knowing very much, but just when how is anyone how you know who would make this kind of thing? Because it was just the scope of this project, especially as his first screenplay was just so large. Um, so it's not that people can't do that, but it certainly sounds you know that there's a pragmatic side to to um, writing and getting things done and getting them up on the screen that you know the writer can assist that process if they if they choose to um you know pick a contemporary story or, or limit the amount of characters and limit the number of locations uh they're going to have a much easier task um i want to flip this question back to you as a writer though and ask you then how do you determine a good premise when you're in your story in other words you you you've got something that you want to write about um these are things that you feel deeply about or how do you how do you recognize um well again is it something i feel deeply about is it something uh-huh. that for me to tell the story is important enough for me to tell the story and for me to live with the developing of the story over a period of time that's the first step so i believe i'm my most critical audience and it doesn't mean I talk to myself all the time, but if I reach you know, a stalemate where it's just, you know things are just too unbelievable, or you know I would never buy it, I would never share it with a friend, then I know that that story is not ready. Uh, so I think you know as a producer, director, or as a writer, in the course of developing the story. I look at the same things. Is this a story that's feasible? You know, do I have the ability to, can I see this on the screen? Can I explain the vision without, you know, constantly falling back on, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Or, you know, um, uh, uh, although I say that too often anyway. Uh, no, but is, is that the concept when you when you say things like, well, the, the concept of, that the audience will know that you're sitting there. I mean, is that about the assumptions that 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 a writer makes regarding the, what the audience, what what you think the audience is privy to or not privy to? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, people say, "Well, this isn't in the script, but well, 
guess what? If this isn't in the script and you're not there to explain it to the producers and the director, you're not there to explain it to everybody, then it's not on the script. If you're not there to, if it's not on the page, it's nowhere. Because that script is going to travel places that the writer will not be. It's going to go to readers, it's going to go to producers, it's going to go to directors. It's then, by that point in time, enough people will ask the questions that will force the writer to put those things on the page, or those things are subject to the interpretation or misinterpretation and the creative input of these other people. And if the writer doesn't understand that other people are going to be massaging the story to make it better, uh, then they're going to be in trouble. So in my experience, if it's not on the page, if I have to ask too many questions about something, then it's either A, not considered by the writer, and it's my job as a filmmaker to put those things in, or B, this character, this story has not yet been developed to a point where it's able to be produced. So would you say it's a good practice to have someone that you trust or someone around you who can read your screenplay or a few different people? I mean, because after they read it once, I mean, I'm so inclined to read it again and again. Yeah. But I mean, somebody who, when they when they ask a question about screenplay, obviously we get our egos involved and, and we can be defensive and say things like, well, yeah, that's not in screenplay, but or we could listen to the kinds of questions and comments that they have and go, here's areas that haven't been developed. Yeah, you have to. Um, I'm very fortunate in that I'm surrounded by really good friends. Again, the first person I go to is Melanie, my wife. I really trust her perspective in telling a story. The next person that, although I have a lot of really close friends I can count on, is the guy who's producing this project with me, Scott Rosenfeld. He's only read about a thousand scripts, I'm sure, and he's produced some, um, you know, amazingly successful films like Home Alone, Mystic Pizza, Teen Wolf, and scores of other films. So he knows what should be in a script. And my relationship and my trust in both Scott and Melanie are such that, you know, I'm, I listen. I listen to everybody because I don't know enough to have all the answers. When I was at uh, film school, I came up with a line that initially I thought was just kind of a, a smart-ass line, but it's that I have all the answers and no solutions. And when you're writing a story, your job is to present problems, and at the end, the resolution is to have a solution, not to leave the story with a lot of open-ended questions so again you know sharing it with people and sharing it with people who who you trust uh, you know train 42 in late train was originally train 43 uh, my friend frank korb who's a fine artist uh actually he's a great artist but he paints fine gallery art uh said, oh, why don't you change it to Train 42? And he referred to other stories where it would be important. To me, it made no difference. But I changed it, and and I liked the suggestion. So, you know, counting on your friends and, uh, you, know, you know, trust people and know that nothing happens all by itself. Very good point. Let me let me ask you. Uh, we've got about uh, oh, eight minutes left, and I, I can see we're going to absolutely have to do a part three. Um, I'm finding it's very fascinating. You're giving out lots of really great information. So, uh, if, if you're willing to do a part three on this, I certainly would would love to have you back. We might do a part part four or five, with the way it goes. But uh, it may um, become a new career. There you go. <laughs> um, 
Two things. One, I'm going to try and put this into one question, and that is that you, you know you, you you've got a final, you've got a screenplay and you've gotten some feedback, and and uh, it may not be the way you originally conceptualized it. I mean, in other words, you're going to go through some self-polishing, or or people are going to give you feedback, and you're going to have to make some changes. Uh, you know, if you're open to suggestions. Um, but then there's also professional, you know, script polishers and enhancers and editors, you know, who you can pay for the service and stuff like that. Uh, so the question is, is, is pretty much, what about, you know, shredding your own your own screenplay or, 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 um, you know, going through that polishing process? And and do you or or does anyone, um, do you recommend the use of of you know script doctors and things like that? Whether you whether you personally use you know a paid paid person like that or not um, I do use you know people who polish scripts not at an early point in the script but when it's reaching a point where the funding is committed where we have some other attachments of talent etc and we're getting ready to go into uh, pre pre-production mode at that point in time a script polish is necessary and the problem with being a writer, and regardless of you write, direct, produce, wash dishes, drive a truck, whatever it is, we get so close to the project that it's sometimes very difficult to make important changes or subtle changes. You know, my children, you know, have flaws, but they're incredible people, and. Uh, it's hard for me to be objective. Yeah. So, you know, it's important to have somebody who is not a friend, necessarily, who will not spare your feelings, who will just look at what's before them and say, this is not going to work, or this will work, this will help tell the story better if you do that. And the interaction between the person who's doctoring the script or polishing the script, whatever term you want to use. And the screenwriter is essential. You know, if it's somebody who hates the whole concept of the story, they will probably not do a very good job of polishing that story. So, you know, you have to find a professional with whom you have a mutual respect. So, I, I, you know, unless you just want this to be a hobby, if it's a hobby, great. But if it's a business venture, if you consider yourself a professional filmmaker, writer, what have you, you have to be willing to go that extra few feet and employ somebody who can make your work better. I um, have a friend who, who wrote a bestseller. He's been on the bestseller list for quite some time. And we were having dinner one night about a year ago, and I asked him as we were leaving, I guess, I just said something about, you know, what was the toughest thing about, you know, writing your book and about having the success. And he said, my editor wanted me to cut 20 pages. He said, I didn't want to cut the 20 pages. He said, I, I felt like they were cutting my limbs off. And I, 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 you know, I refused and I refused and I refused. He said it was the best decision I ever made was to cut those twenty pages. <laughs> so you know, he he ultimately he listened and he cut the twenty. You know, they or they cut him for him or whatever. But the, he, in in retrospect, he said it was the, it was the wisest um, choice that he could have made. And uh, I do I agree with you. I think that that we as people get too close to things. It's, it's, even if I write a letter. And I try and do my own editing. You know, there are things that I, because my sister is a journalist and an editor, and I'll send her something sometimes, and she'll say, "Well, cut this or do this," and I go, "Yes, but you're missing my point here." And and you know, I try and defend what I have as opposed to listening and going, you know, here's a professional whose whose advice I should hear and then take. And when I do, you know, I'm often rewarded, you know, in in ways that I couldn't have imagined. And when I don't, then you know, I put out my own sloppy product. So. Uh, that makes perfect. You're not sense. alone in that. And if you know the reader says, if the writer says, "Well, you're missing my point," you're right. The point has been made. You know, make your point. Find a way to tell that, to make that point, where 
the reader, the audience, the listener gets it. It could be subtle. You could be building up to another point in the story where it's the big kaboom, but you have to light that fuse. You have to make that point somehow in an obvious way. Or you have to make the point, period. Well, and I and I think I think what you just said right there, you know, is a is a is a great capper to it. It, it. That if somebody says, if I have to say you're missing my point, then obviously I haven't made my point to the right. person. Yeah, I mean that that is that is uh, worth its weight in gold when people are giving you feedback. They listen to your own defenses, and and find out what you're saying in defense of the project, and realize that those those are all the gaps that need filling, and those are all the areas that need to be addressed. And those may be some of the most important points of the story. Right. That you felt those things so deeply that you thought that you had expressed them, you had communicated them. And, uh, you know, again, if you use your defenses as, you know, the mirror by which you take a look at what you're trying to accomplish, you'll be better served by that. No, it's excellent. I mean, it really is. It is excellent, excellent advice. Um, you know what, Ron? We've got uh, about two or three minutes left. I, I'd like to, I guess, just leave it on that note because that's a that's a powerful note for people to keep in mind, and and then ask that uh, we schedule another session sometime soon after we get off the air here today, if if you're open to that. Okay, that'd be nice. <laughs> Awesome. All right, and uh, and then we'll just tell our, our our listeners it will be after the fact for those who have archived. But tonight, I'm going to see you. I'm actually going to see you downtown in in Milwaukee, or or not south of downtown in Milwaukee at the RDI Studios. Right, there are new sound stages and post production and production facilities that I've had the opportunity to be there before, and to say they're impressive is an understatement. And the people working there. And it's almost like they're family and that they really want to help make the work better. So I'm very excited about going there. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. The food is supposed to be very good, too. <laughs> True. That's always a good reason to go. But they are having a party. We've got a number of events coming up throughout the state because Public Enemies is uh, opening on July 1st, and I think there's a lot of uh, premiere parties and uh, sneak previews of the movies that are happening uh, tonight is is the event at RDI Studios. It is a um, uh, quite the shindig, I understand, in the early evening. And then next week there are things at the Historical Society in Milwaukee. Um, there's something in Oshkosh. There's something in Madison. There's something in Columbus. In the different lo- in the different areas in which they shot. Uh, uh, some of Public Enemy, and those are fundraisers. I understand for uh, Film Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee Film, and perhaps I'm not sure if it's the Arts Wisconsin and, or you know the Historical Society. So there's a lot of upcoming uh, things that uh, uh, people after the fact. I'm going to be there with camera crews covering some of these events for for a show that I do called Anytime on MyOneChannel.com. And so uh, I'm looking forward to it. But I'm looking forward to seeing you at a social event this evening. And I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. Pardon me? Thank you for having me. It's been great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. But thanks for discussing these excellent points. We've got a lot more to discuss in the future about getting a script to screen and, and more on writing. So I want to thank you, Ryan Coleman. Have a great day. See you later tonight. And, um, and take care until then. And Thank then you. You too. That. All right. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. So uh, all of my listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in to uh, Rex Sykes' Movie Beat live on Blog Talk Radio. Again, remember, you can make it a favorite. You can tweet it. You can, you can send it to friends. You can Facebook it. Uh, if after the fact uh, you go to uh, rexsykes.com, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com, Uh, These interviews are archived. There's lots of great interviews. There's part one with Ron. We just concluded two parts with Dave West. I'm sorry, one part with Dave West on on, on sound mixing. Uh, He's coming back for another another interview. Susan Moses is coming back to talk about producing. We have um, 
just finished a, a marvelous uh, interview with Clancy Troutman of Digital Dreams Design Sound Studios in Burbank on post-production sound. So there's lots of great things. Other directors, writers, casting directors, um, agents. So and uh, I want to thank you again for your support and for your letters. Write me at rex at rexsykes.com, and that will be a wrap. <laughs>